If I seem like I'm being glib at the beginning of the podcast, it's because I didn't know what was coming. <laughs> I was being all silly, and Jeremy was being real. But uh, uh, I, I think we have a really interesting bunch of movies, and it's uh, obviously something that ended up being kind of personal to Jeremy, and uh, crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. So uh, an interesting episode of Rank and Review awaits you. As usual on Rank and Review, you're going to encounter spoilers, and you're going to encounter some coarse language. Um, we're going to talk about six of the maddest movies in my collection, and if you have any feedback to give me, you can do that by writing me at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. And please check out the website at rankinreview.ca. And... Uh, if you like this podcast, my guess is that you will enjoy the Terror Table podcast, so do check out the Terror Table podcast. And if you're as happy to hear Jeremy back on the show as I am, then you should definitely support Jeremy on Patreon, Jeremy Cook, uh, look him up on Patreon, support him if you'd like to support great artists, because he is a, a great artist in Saskatchewan, and I think he deserves our support. Uh, enjoy the residuals, and... Uh, got the Mactala Quartet that he does locally in Saskatchewan and around Saskatoon, and uh, he's a jack of all trades, so welcome to episode 147, and welcome back, Jeremy Cook. We missed you, brother. Jeremy Cook, I'm so happy just to see you. I feel like I never get to see you anymore. And it has been way too fucking long since you've been on Rank and Review. It's been over two years. I understand that you're a busy man. I don't mean to give you any shit, but damn it, we miss you at Rank and Review. It's good to be back. It's huh. very good to be back. Uh, we're here to discuss some more mad movies. Mm-hmm. There's kind of there's a lot of themes going on through these movies, but I would say definitely we got some monster quality going on to a lot of these movies. We have questions of fate, 
going on in a lot of these movies, and we have ideas of family and the repercussions of family <laughs> going through a lot of these. And sanity and <laughs> what's reality. What is reality? And, uh, and a lot of Lovecraftian influenced movies here. Mm -hmm. But a lot of really, really strange movies. Uh, so why did you pick this list, and um, and and how are you doing, brother? <laughs> well, I you know I guess I can answer both of those questions. Uh, the first question, why did I pick the list? It was basically just because I wanted to see In the Mouth of Madness again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I had seen it for the first time in the two thousands, and it made an impression on me, so I wanted to see it again. Yeah. And the and, rest just came along with it? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and as for how I've been doing, uh, it's interesting. In a lot of ways, these movies came out in a timely fashion into my life as well because I started making a lot of changes in my life and started crafting it in the way that I wanted it to be. Um, uh, like Created your own <laughs> new reality? Exactly. And, you know, for, first of all, let's just maybe go through a little list of all the things that have happened in the, you know... You keep on having more babies. Any idea what's causing it? I think sex. <laughs> oh, that's right. Sorry, that was a personal question. Yes. So there's, there is an, ex <laughs> there's an extra child since yes. the last uh, Rankin Review. I uh, am now on a drug called Concerta that makes me a little less stupid and a little bit more focused. And it keeps lead in your pencil? Uh, uh, <laughs> Maybe? <I d> no. <laughs> no, there were no issues with that okay, all right, before. No. I don't mean to not take you seriously. I apologize. But you've made some serious changes. Yes. Um, what else? Um, see, I switched jobs a couple times in the time that... Uh, uh, that your quartet's largely come about. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have a new quartet. Um, uh, Mactala quartet. I'm still doing work with, with the residuals. Um, I got a yellow belt in karate. Uh, <laughs> so, so I better watch what I say. <laughs> you better. But, so what I'm basically going trying to say here is that there have been a lot of changes in my life. And what one of those unexpected side effects of changing my life has been is that I actually s lost touch with reality a few times. <laughs> Maybe. Isn't that like a side effect of living in small town Saskatchewan to some extent? It could be, but I'd been living there for several years mm -hmm. with, with no uh, ill effects that way. Um, something about uh, learning all about new identities and putting masks on and uh, changing one's life, I guess, too quickly can make one filled with spiritual terror. That's all I can really say is maybe what happened. And do you think these movies exacerbated that or complemented it? <laughs> um, probably a, a little bit of both. Um, and another timely event that happened is not too long after we recorded um, I discovered, I don't know if it was the result of all these changes or if it, it was the result of maybe some interactions with the Concerta. Gay, 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 gay. No. <laughs> no. Um, you might remember a little incident uh, that happened where I guess I had a psychotic break from reality as the result of smoking pot. <laughs> 
<laughs> because I don't like looking back on it. I think that's what it was. Right. And you were there to comfort me and uh, keep me in touch. But it was one of the worst experiences of my life. So and that's why I haven't seen you because you were traumatized. I don't think that's it. No, no PTSD either. <laughs> but I did try pot again afterwards. Um, and it had a similar effect. Huh. I had only three little lousy little tokes. And uh, then I was listening to a conversation someone was having and I looked up in a tree and I was like, what's that bad idea doing up there in that tree? Uh -oh. <laughs> oh shit, it's happening again. I'm just going to go downstairs, listen to some music that I like and relax. And yeah, so I guess, I, you know, either reaction with the concerta or it um, maybe we've just discovered that Jeremy has... Um, extreme reactions to THC that we didn't know about. Maybe I had some really poor well, You know, there. sometimes nature says no. <laughs> yeah. yeah one of the lucky uh, I, I react really strangely to uh, sleep medication sometimes. Yeah. I remember being really sick. This was years ago when NyQuil had uh, serious shit in it. Apparently it's much more diluted now. Yeah. But I remember being told if you're really sick to drink some NyQuil you'll sleep for a day but you'll wake up and feeling better mm -hmm. and I drank some NyQuil and I woke up woke up I fell asleep right away but I woke up like an hour later about as fucked up as I've ever been in my life and sick <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so th that wasn't a good thing you know uh, and then you killed all those people and then and then I killed all of those people but you know <laughs> that'll all be for the courts to decide <laughs> I'm yes. just saying I can understand having strange reactions to things because uh, I have personally a lot of things that apparently lock people out just seem to uh, just buzz me and yeah. <laughs> keep me awake and it's funny actually you look at the uh, side effects on a lot of these like sleep aids or stuff like that and they'll actually list as a possible side effect insomnia <laughs> excuse me what <laughs> <laughs> I feel we've, we've gone off topic. Yes. The, uh, uh, the movies are about madness. Yes, and, and you can relate to the feelings of madness is what can, you were trying to say. That's where I was going with it, yes. Well, you got really real on the podcast. Thank you, brother. I appreciate your frank honesty. <laughs> it's all about being real and vulnerable and authentic. And talking about Jason movies. <laughs> and how does this all relate to Jason boys? <laughs> I guess you'll have to listen to the rest of the podcast to, to find, find out. Good enough. I can't think of a more, I mean, it really we didn't really discuss the themes that much, but I think it's a solid introduction. I'm going with it. Okay. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to say before I list off these six movies and we start this podcast? No, list them off. All right. We're going to talk about John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. I will argue that this is kind of the good movie he made in the 90s. <laughs> Ouch. Um, we're going to talk about Stuart Gordon's Castle Freak. We're going to talk about Splice from Canadian filmmaker Vincenzo Natale. We're going to talk about The Dunmator, who I don't know who directed it off the top of my head. Roger Corman. <laughs> he didn't direct it, he produced it. Oh, okay. Daniel Holler, if we must. The ever important and memorable Jason Goes to Hell, which we just screened previous to this recording. That's directed by Adam Marcus, for those who care. And we're going to finish with John Cuscarelli's... Uh, Don Coscarelli's, pardon me, John Dies at the End. You and I reviewed one of his early films, Phantasm, Once Upon a Time. Yes, that's right. Let's do this. Let's do it. This one will drive you absolutely mad. 
The riots began because the stores could not meet the demand of Sutter Kane's novel, In the Mouth of Madness. Kane disappeared two months ago without a trace. Isn't he the guy that writes horror books? You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. I need to know if he's alive or dead, and I need that book. It's a setup. It's a I just have to work out how it's set up. Kane's writing has been known to have an effect on his readers. See this? It's a map. This whole thing has been staged. You just get out. This is not reality. It's all happening for real, Trent. <sighs> all right, I might have misspoken. I, I, I think that the Memoirs of the Invisible Man, which he also made in the in the nineties, was a decent film. But I for me personally, the nineties was not a great time for John Carpenter. <laughs> if Vampires is to Vampires, Village of the Damned, and Ghosts of Mars all happened Ooh. in the nineties. <laughs> um, but in the Mouth of Madness and in Memoirs of the Invisible Man also happened in the 90s, and I like those ones. And even the even the rough chapters of uh, Carpenter's career, I do have some weird faint affection for. Uh, as much as I don't think Ghosts of Mars is a good movie, I don't think anybody but John Carpenter could have made that movie. It's still somehow distinctly a John Carpenter catastrophe. There's something really rough-hewn about every John Carpenter movie, don't you think? Well, he's unobtrusive as a director. I think, like, he's, like, you know, standard shot. Did we get it? Yeah. He doesn't... I, very rarely do I see him doing flashy things with the camera. He'll put the camera where he thinks will best tell the story, and he doesn't move it a lot. But it's an, that kind of efficiency is, you know good for me you know if it gets too stylized sometimes you kind of lose the style to this or you lose the story to the style pardon me no the the performances i find can be kind of iffy in john carpenter movies too i don't know if it you know if you need to have the right actor in order to make it seem good but i've seen lots I of i think it's trickier to play in this world than you would think like to do a movie like They Live or Big Trouble in Little China and play something so overtly ridiculous and big and yet still keep the world real and straight enough that the stakes can kind of matter while you're watching the movie, it's it's tricky. It's tricky. Anyway, uh, we're both <laughs> big fans of uh, John Carpenter. I think that's a fair statement. I wouldn't say I'm a big fan. No, I'm I've, a big fan I've of John Carpenter. I've uh, seen quite a few movies of his that I enjoy quite a bit. Nice. And In the Mouth of Madness is one of them. Yeah. Well, this really, it's not something that he wrote, but it's one of his for real horror movies. There's kind of like the goofier John Carpenter, where he's kind of like making a piece of entertainment. Like I would think, you know, Big Trouble in Little China is just like trying to dazzle you and, and keep you having fun the whole time and then there's the darker numbers like the thing or prince of darkness where mm -hmm. the tone becomes much more serious uh in the mouth of madness uh deals with an author named sutter kane who seems to be an amalgam of stephen king and hp lovecraft yes who's the most popular writer in the world and who has vanished on the eve of his new book coming out and sam neill plays john trent who's a private investigator hired by the publishing company to locate their prized author and uh, figure out what's going on. Why is he, why is he acting so strange? And uh, initially he dismisses the whole thing as a publicity stunt, 
But the deeper he digs, the weirder things become. Yes. There is an inherent madness to the movie. It is a very strange movie, and it is a movie of its time. I don't think you would be able to avoid noticing that this was a film made in the early 90s. (laughs) But to me, the weirdness kind of helps the movie. Because in the end, the movie itself is very, very mad. And the deeper and madder it becomes, the more I love it. I am a huge fan of In the Mouth of Madness. Yes. Um, I've been listening, but incidentally, I've been listening to uh, your podcast lately. That's good to know. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things I've noticed, that ways in which it's gone to shit, of course, since I've been <laughs> since left, left yeah. is that you haven't been doing as many... Um, Jerry's? Well, those two. I, I was going to say plot synopses. Yes. So I'm really glad that we... We, we covered that. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Essentially, let's you know just go straight to the spoiler, I guess. <laughs> okay. Uh, we discover the main character basically. I guess you would say discovers that he's just a character. He's the main character of the novel in the mouth of madness. Yes. <laughs> and in the, do you believe in the universe of in the mouth of madness? He is a real person whose life happens to be in the book and on the screen? Or is he just a character in Silver King's novel? I mean, like, he would have manifested, I suppose, in reality, the few seconds before he walked into the door of Chuck Heston's boardroom, right? (laughs) Yes. Because presumably that's how the... Well, no, I guess then the novel would have started in the asylum. Presuming we're watching a film adaptation of the novel. (laughs) Which we are, (laughs) Which we are. Yeah. (laughs) The opening scene is Sam Neill in the mental institution and the, the story about the balls business, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it does start in a really crazy manic point and then it sort of resets where everything is sane and the movie slowly loses its mind as it progresses. Yes. Um, but yeah, the he is basically the linchpin that's going to undo the universe. Such is the story of the novel, but such is the reality that he is experiencing. Yes. Um, and it's a tough concept to sell, and I think it's sold really well. Especially, like, this is the same popcorn crowd that would go and see vampires and, and ghosts of Mars and enjoy them unironically, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't seen at least Lovecraftian ideas this well expressed in a Hollywood movie. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a, a bit out of date on my Lovecraft movies as well, uh, but as far as I can tell... This might be the most successful Lovecraftian adapt, like semi-adaptation, just in its spirit that I've seen so far. It's a wonderful well. thing to say to Dagon, but okay. Well, okay, Dagon, Dagon was much more truer to the source material, but it wasn't as good a movie. Yes. And I think that they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Like I say, there's the Lovecraft old ones, but there's very much the Stephen King aesthetic of the small town with the kids and the dog and the the Maine-ish setting, even though this was obviously not shot in Maine. Yes, yes. Fun fact, the paperboy in this movie, Little Kid on the Bike, mm-hmm. Hayden Christensen. Really? Fun Neat. fact. <laughs> well, just thought I'd throw that out there for the kids at home. <laughs> he uh, he really uh, melted into the role, unlike another role <laughs> yes, that I can think yes. of. Um, so you uh, you mentioned that it is a movie of its time and place, and I think that uh, one of the good things about that is that in this particular time and place, we have some excellent excellent uh, practical effects and creature effects as well. 
and showing them when it's important and not showing them uh, when we need to have our imagination fill in the important bits. And what I'm thinking of here is there's a, a great boneless girl pra practical effect. Yes. Where you can see you can see everything and it looks great. But then later on, when Trent is being chased by the old ones, uh, we don't actually get a good look at them. We see them in the background and I guess if you squint hard enough at them, it looks kind of like uh, Jabba's palace from Return of the Jedi. But, um... <laughs> it's a blurry sort of almost blender of appendages and teeth sort of swirling around that you can't quite make out in the background, mm -hmm. which is, to be fair, not unlike what H.P. Lovecraft would describe, right. or else he would describe it as an unknowable, unseeable thing that would break your conscious mind by, by even glancing it or whatever which is a good thing that we didn't get a good look at <laughs> exactly you don't want to drive your audience crazy yes <laughs> um i like the way they uh sort of slowly start playing with the world of reality it's the this car trip i've always really loved the whole sequence of him driving in the car because it really is the journey from him being a complete skeptic to him being a complete believer in yes. everything that's going on uh, so, but at first he's kind of being dickish about how, like, stupid she is to be taking this thing seriously. Um, then, of course, the problem comes, I guess I didn't mention the female character. Styles. Styles. Julie Carmen, she's been sent to sort of represent the interests of the, of the publishing company. She finally gets her hand on the manuscript. And once she reads the manuscript... A, she goes crazy, or B, she is helpless but to play the part that is written for her. Yes. And you don't know what you expect her to do, but pretzeling her body and walking like a crab or eating her car keys so that he can't take them, like, <laughs> it gets pretty fucking weird. Mm -hmm. And, uh... Again, I think a lot of people, especially if you are not used to this kind of world, uh, I think the movie will sustain itself just because scene to scene, beat for beat, you do not know what you're going to get. Now, if people prefer to be in familiar ground, if they like their Friday the 13th, for, an, for instance, you know, where they know the rules of the game and how it's being played, then maybe that's not going to work for them. Mm -hmm. But for me, I like a movie that keeps me on my toes. And I was trying to solve the mystery that Sam Neill was trying to solve. And I couldn't obviously solve it before he did, but I was compelled the whole time. Yes. Uh, it, it also has that sort of gumshoe narrative where, like, the gumshoe is slowly solving his own murder or solving his own fate while he's trying to crack the case of the movie or the subject of the story. We've seen that before in movies like Angel Heart or mm -hmm. lots of them, really. And when he finally understands right at the end of the movie as he's watching his own life unfold on screen mm -hmm. that scene is so brilliant where he starts laughing oh he's cackling he's, yes he's loving it he's chewing down his popcorn this is <laughs> it's it's one of my favorite movie endings actually well and sam neill who i'd like to point out has been in some incredible movies cites this as one of his favorite movies that he's been in really yeah, he's personally a huge fan of it. Because it was a really good and really interesting Carpenter movie, it didn't do that well. 
Because that typically <laughs> seems to be, when, with the exception of like Halloween, you know, he makes something really brilliant like The Thing and nobody shows up. He, he makes a really good solid horror movie like Prince of Darkness. I think Prince of Darkness is decent. Nobody shows up, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, they much prefer his more, you know, Escape from New York, Starman kind of crowd pleasers, I guess. But to me, like I said, not only is this the best movie Carpenter made in the 90s, it's one of his best movies. Yeah, I would say so. And it's creepy. It's scary. It takes you places that you're never going to expect. And it's a wonderful, loving tribute to Lovecraft. And I guess Robert W. Chambers with King and Yellow type stuff is in yeah. there too. And there's some Stephen King love too. Uh, I really like it. If you haven't seen it... and. Um... It's sad to me that I'm old enough, that I'm of an age, that there could be people listening to this who are like, in the mouth of madness? What's that? <laughs> but if somehow you're one of those people, watching the mouth of madness, damn it. Now you know. Now you know. Stuart Gordon, the director of Fortress, The Pit and the Pendulum, and Reanimator takes you into the dungeons of Castle Dorsino. Now an American family. Welcome to Castle Riley, lady. Will inherit a legacy of evil. They say the castle is home. And a master of modern horror. Will unleash his most terrifying creation. Stuart Gordon's Castle Free. There's somebody else here! There's somebody in the castle! So I'm a, I'm a Stuart Gordon fan. Um, I think that there's certain things that people who can appreciate Stuart Gordon kind of can take on the chin or are willing to accept. Stuart Gordon likes to do whatever he wants to do when he makes a movie. He doesn't want anyone to say, you can't show that, we can't, that's too gratuitous. He's not about that. So in order to make the movie that he wants to make, he has to make it incredibly cheaply. He, he, like, almost to a micro-budget stage. And uh, at this point in the uh, mid-90s, a lot of them were being shot in European countries with a lot of actors who didn't even necessarily speak the language and they would just be redubbed in afterwards, which gives some of his movies, including this one, an almost giallo-type feel. They almost feel like an old D'Argento movie or something yeah, like that. Spaghetti but, horror. Yeah, but they're not. But there's something other about them. So this movie, Castle Freak, which is very loosely based on The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft, uh, so according to the, the screenplay author, brings the regulars uh, from his crew of uh, Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton to play a married couple, very unhappy, and they're blind, bringing their blind daughter to this 12th century castle they've inherited. Uh, in yes, uh, before you go on, I should, I should tell your audience... That it is Castle Freak. It's not Castle Freak. Castle I, I thought, freak. yes, I thought when I, I was going into this movie that this would be a castle 
that was named Freak, or perhaps oh, a, Castle Freak. I see yes, what you're saying. <laughs> you know, sort of like Castle Dracula or something like that. No, this is the the castle is the descriptor added to Freak. It is a Freak within a castle. Within a castle, <laughs> not a castle that is called Freak. Yes. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I thought that was clear, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> Uh, yes. Jeffrey Pill and Barbara Crampton, husband and wife, very unhappy. Uh, they bring their daughter to this castle they've inherited in Italy. And their daughter is blind. And she starts complaining that there's some weird shenanigans going on in the castle. But the parents are so obsessed with their own, you know, wounds and their own bullshit that they're not Well, really is it bullshit, though? Because... No, it's not bullshit at all. <laughs> Barbara Crampton has a really good case. I think actually one of the problems of the movie is how irredeemable Jeffrey Combs is as a character. Well, the, the, his bullshit is basically... The reason why his daughter is blind is because he blinded her yeah, in a he car accident. Yeah, he was drinking and driving and killed their son. And their son died, yeah. yeah. So obviously there is strain on the marriage. And I know that he's disappointed that he doesn't have a sex life anymore, but boo fucking <laughs> And he's an alcoholic and he consistently makes bad decisions until basically the end of this movie, yeah. right? On the other hand, he discovers he's now a duke. Yes, and he has a brother. <laughs> yes, <laughs> although he has a, the fact that he has a brother reveals itself through, throughout the course of the movie. We allow spoilers. I don't know. Yes. Anyway, that's the basic structure of it. It is very cheap, and it's it's more seriously toned than Stuart Gordon typically tends to go for. He tends to be a little bit bigger and a little bit more out there. And I think it could be accused of, A, maybe taking too much of its time, and B, yes, being rough around the edges because of its budget. Mm-hmm. All that said, I like it more than I don't. I'm not going to say that it doesn't have problems, but there's something about Castle Freak. There is something about Castle Freak, and, and you're right. Stuart Gordon makes the movie that he wants to, or tries to get as close to it. And you can always be guaranteed, watching a Stuart Gordon flick, that you're going to see something you haven't seen before. <laughs> yeah. And in this case, it's some brutal things. <laughs> Um, have you seen in another movie, for instance, Larry, a crotch shot of a horrible person who's been castrated? I have not. Yeah. Oh, poor old Stumpy. Yeah. <laughs> have you Have you then seen this this wretched individual then proceed to uh, bite into a woman's breast and and chew on her because he doesn't know any better I, I hadn't seen that until I watched this movie and yet by your description you would think oh why would I watch such a horrible terrible thing well to be fair the movie is pretty upfront about its castle freakness I mean yes. it, it is in the title <laughs> yes <laughs> and uh, sex and violence are always a part of the horror genre uh, what I would say is that I'm not sure how Lovecraft this feels to me well yeah yeah and you know what I think um, that this does not resemble the outsider from In any what I real about. way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. You can say influenced by or inspired by. I mean, yeah. he has done some straight Lovecraft adaptations. Reanimator. He did the Masters of Horror in the Witch House. Or Dreams in the Witch House. Dreams of the Witch House was a nice. Uh, that uh, was a very good adaptation. And as you know, I'm I'm a huge defender of Dagon. Lame CGI or not, I'm a huge defender of day. Yes. So, uh, one of the things I really enjoy about this movie um, is 
that it leaves a lot to the imagination. And well, first of all, first of all, the castle freak himself is a very pitiable creature. And it still does evil things. If there's that Frankenstein thing, it's still not just to be a monster, but this is a horrible thing that happened to something. It's a freak now, but it started as a person. Yes, and that's part of the brilliance of the show. There's, there's this whole story that we don't know about. We know that the castle freak had a mom yeah. that daily, right before he was fed, beat him. Uh, and we know that she horribly disfigured his face with something. We know she castrated him for some reason. We know that she broke his leg for, for some, some reason. reason. And we know that his, the freak's dad and um, our main character's dad. What's our main character's name? Sorry, Jeffrey Combs is playing a character whose name is John Riley. Yes, so we know that John Riley's dad at one point was married to this woman and went to America and took John with him. Yes. And we can presume from what happened to the castle freak... That that might have had something to do with it? That, well, yeah, that, that his dad might have said, Oh my God, I think I've married the worst person <laughs> in the world. I have to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, I, yeah, <laughs> no, I agree. <laughs> And I like that this that this horrible story is hiding in the background of the main events of, of the picture. Yeah. Um, you, this family thinks it's got problems. This family thinks it's fucked up. But yeah. no, no. Castle Freak, by contrast. Castle <laughs> you guys have had some bumps in the road. His car went off the fucking cliff. Right? Yes. <laughs> I also thought maybe they were playing with this thing where... Uh, because it's his brother. There's another thing when we talk about the Dunwich Corps with twin brothers, right? Um, he had all the opportunity in the world, and his brother was tortured and beaten in a room for his entire life. Mm -hmm. And yet, Jeffrey Combs is still a, kind of a monster in his own way, isn't he? In a lot of ways, though, it's just alcoholism, right? I, get, I know behaviors drive alcoholism, but at some point, alcohol takes over yeah well you know speaking of someone who works in a drunk tank one of the least one of the phrases that i had the least sympathy for was but i was drunk yes <laughs> you know like yeah but you know when you get drunk you do terrible things even if you don't remember it you know when you get drunk you do terrible things right, right. it's somehow the fact that they don't remember it or the fact that they wouldn't have done it if they weren't drunk somehow absolves them Never has worked for me, not in reality or fiction. So imagine then that you're the type of person that can't help but drink. Yeah. And you're so filled with shame about the things that you do when you're drunk. And that feeds in to that personal shame that makes you drink Yeah, I can more. see that. But I'd like to think that I wouldn't deal with it by bringing a prostitute to my home. <laughs> like... I have never Get done a that hotel while I was room drunk. at the least. <laughs> at the very least, if you must do that, like don't bring her home. What are you doing? <laughs> there it was a very big house. Yes. A very big it's a castle. man it's a castle. Yes. Like, it, the uh, castle freak can run around in it for days and they don't notice it's it. It's big enough to hide a freak. You, <laughs> yeah. you, there's enough room there to bring a prostitute back. Well, I want to show this movie to my kids just so I can let them know that there might be a freak 
in their house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the evil Bart crawling around in the attic. You know? <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you can't help but have thoughts like that when you're a kid. I remember a house in Melford I was in uh, was divided up into suites. And in the basement, we had access to the basement, but there was just this blocked off door. And as a kid, the blocked off door gains <laughs> some imaginative properties. Yes. Bad <laughs> things. Only bad things yes. jump from behind it. Um, it. I like Castle Freak, but here's the thing. like, It's one of those ones that I have a hard time recommending to people because I think the audience for it is kind of specific. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend Castle Freak to too many people. Um, and yet I still kind of like it. But it's a very specific thing that they're riding here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it'd be fun to maybe watch with Beckman if he's never seen it and watch him cringe. Squirm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and again, Stuart Gordon is so good for that. I mean, he won't make a movie that you won't like remember. There'll be at least a couple of scenes that you're like, holy shit, did they ever go there? <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's also interesting, Barbara Crampton, who plays the much beleaguered wife, um, he's, she's used to, or he's used her in a lot of his films, but usually she's very highly sexualized and required to be naked on an altar or, you know, some, some context of that. And she's used as an actress here. And uh, Barbara Crampton, on top of being a really, like, a, a highly sexualized figure, is a really good actress. She's actually kind of had a revitalization in her career lately. She was in movies like You're Next and We Are Still Here. Uh, she's showing up as a character actor in some horror movies. And she's got the goods and she doesn't have to take her clothes off to, to prove that. So. Well, good for her. <laughs> and, you know, we saw other nudity. <laughs> it wasn't that he skimped on. <laughs> yes. You're generally going to see nudity in a yeah. Stuart Gordon movie. You're generally just going to see stuff that will make you shocked. I remember really I recorded uh, I recorded I reviewed this movie Stuck <laughs> that he did and one of the early scenes in that movie we see an adult diaper changed like fully on screen right and you just do not expect to see that that's where we tastefully cut away right wow, Hollywood magic <laughs> right <Wow. laughs> no nope. so uh, he's going to show you things that maybe you don't want to see but that gives this weird unstable quality to the movie because you don't know it. And uh, a lot of horror movies will just establish this by showing you something shocking early in the movie so that you think, oh man, what are they going to show us next? Stuart Gordon doesn't have to do that. You just know, because it's Stuart Gordon, <laughs> we're going to step over the line and we're going to do a little dance. <laughs> and if that sounds like something you can get behind, then for sure try out Castle Freak. If you're a more casual viewer, I think a lot of people will find it slowly paced and cheaply made and, you know shocking for the sake of shocking and uh i i think it's better than that but i'm sympathetic to that perception now as far as the madness of the movie there's a meta angle to this movie that seems kind of maddening to me as well <laughs> and that it, it's a movie that almost seems caught out of time because when i was watching it i was thinking it was a movie that was made in the 80s because Jeffrey Combs looks so young in it. Oh, I think it's 90s. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And I, so I was shocked to discover that it came out in 1995. And I was like, how does Jeffrey Combs look so young in this movie? Yeah. And then look so old, like one year later, when in he's the in The Frighteners. Yeah. And how, like... The, this experience obviously was hard on him. <laughs> yeah. The, the prostitute looks like she's from the 80s. Yeah. 
And so many, like the music sounds like it's from the 80s. The film quality looks 80s, yet it's from 1995. Yeah. And it was a released direct to video here. I think it saw screens in some of the European mar- markets, but yeah. it almost, I think it just looked too cheap to even try to throw it up on a screen in, in the States. And then somehow, I, well, I watched a special feature. I don't know how this happened, but there's like a retrospective with with Captain Kirk, William Shatner. Bill Shatner, the Shat himself. Interviewing <laughs> Jeffrey Combs and, and uh, Barbara Crampton. Crampton. And and Stuart Gordon. I don't know when this was done. I'm assuming sometime in the 2000s. And I don't know why it was done. I don't know why it's William Shatner doing the interview. And I don't know why it was important enough to do a retrospective about. But it was really weird to see that. Well, it's just one of those things. It's weird that it exists. It's like almost impossible that it exists. But I'm kind of glad that it exists. <laughs> like many Stuart Gordon movies. Yeah. Uh, the freak that's chained in my castle is the shell of William Shatner. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. Here he comes. All clear. That's it. Heart rate stable. If we don't use human DNA now, someone else will. Regulators and politicians, they tear us to pieces. Millions of people are suffering and dying. What are the moral considerations of that? This is illegal. We're going to go to jail for this. Human cloning is illegal. This won't be human. Not entirely. It's coming out. It's not due for months. It's slippery. It's... <laughs> what was that? A mistake. Here is something. Completely unique in the world. It's empty. Clive? Clive? Clive! Elsa, get out! It's dangerous! It's growing fast. Days within a matter of minutes. She's perfect. We'd crossed the line. What did you expect when you made it? Didn't you have a plan? You can't let her out. Specimens need to be contained. Don't call her that. What's going on? So, uh, Vincenzo Natale is a Canadian filmmaker, and uh, he got some production uh, backing from Guillermo del Toro to do this movie, Splice. And it's a really, really interesting movie. But I've been encountering this increasingly lately in the podcast, that there's these movies that I think, I think that you can get into this movie if you can get over the certain hurdles. There's a, or, or, or there's a certain pill that this movie's going to ask you to swallow. And if you can swallow it, you're going to go with the movie. But if you refuse to swallow said pill, if you spit it out, then you're not going to like the movie. Um, it's a really interesting and gutsy, and I think, kind of subversive uh, the science fiction horror movie about Clive and Elsa played by Adrian Brody and Sarah Pauly these two uh, very intelligent but not very smart if that makes sense uh, scientists who are working in as genetic engineers they are creating living organisms and 
studying and at the threshold science. And there's this thing that they could do that could explode their scientific research to make things progress and do well for their, their handlers. But because they're, they're working for a pharmaceutical company. They're working for a pharmaceutical company. company. That's how this is back in the lab. It would be to use human DNA and make something that's got some human in it. And because it's a horror movie, they break all the laws of reason and all the laws of science, and they create Dren, this creature, which is just nerd backwards, which I thought was a nice touch. Yes. And they become parents. And all of the artificial things, the stuff that they overlooked, the stuff that they didn't take seriously before they were parents, has really vast and sudden consequences to them. <laughs> and uh, it's the classic Jeff Goldblum uh, Jurassic Park thing. They were so wound up in seeing if they could do something, they didn't really take any thought to the ramifications. They are so cool and wrapped up in themselves and just joyful uh, almost about the way that they break the laws of God. <laughs> yeah. But from a horror movie standpoint, it's, it's as if we opened on two characters who said, hey, let's go to Camp Crystal Lake on Friday the 13th and have naked sex on the beach. <laughs> like they're just doing everything catastrophically and obviously wrong. We are going and, to literally face that later on in the podcast. Yes, <laughs> uh, that's why I'm mentioning it. But like, uh, they do everything wrong all of the time, and it becomes frustrating. Both before the creation of this creature and after the creature is created, Sarah Polly and Adrian Brody do everything wrong. And if that's going to bug you... This movie's not going to work for you. <laughs> I got over it just because it really, really is gutsy and it really pushes some strange, uncomfortable ideas. Definitely. And I feel this as, in a weird way, a building block for Del Toro to get to the shape of water. It is another movie about a, a person who falls in love with a, essentially a creature. Yeah, it just it works out much better in the shape of water than it does in Splice. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to take it over, but uh, yeah, there's a lot to chew on. What did you think of Splice? Well, once again, we're seeing things that you've never seen before, yes. and that is definitely to the credit of, of Splice. The All of the life cycle phases that Dren goes through are so cool looking. Um but disturbing, but almost in a less icky way than the Stuart Gordon ick. Just kind of like... Certainly not without the ick. Dren herself has a quality where you can see the humanity in it and there's something beautiful, especially when she's a child. Yes. The whole sequence when she's just a little girl, it, it really fucks with you because you can understand falling in love with that creature. Yes. <laughs> but she does go through uh, life cycle phases before that where she's essentially just a disgusting potato. Yes. sperm <laughs> potato. Yeah. And then she's like a chicken-like thing with no arms, like a dinosaur with a human baby head or something. By the way, all of these special effects created by a Canadian special effects studio, French one, and the effects are amazing. They are. And the designs are amazing. I think I feel the Guillermo influence here, too, because he's really good at making monsters that are both terrifying and kind of beautiful at the same time. Mm -hmm. feel that there, for sure. Yes. And uh, once she is an adult, she takes on a, an interesting series of 
behaviors as well. Uh, very quick movements all the time. Almost bird-like at times, yeah. Yes, sudden sudden movements and the way that she looks at things with wonder. It's it's. Uh, you like Duran. Until you don't. Until <laughs> yeah. you don't. And, but you can see why she got, gets to that phase, though. And you still feel kind of bad for her. And it may not be subtle, but she was, quote, made a monster. And then she was, quote, made a monster. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. She doesn't have the best parents. She is growing up in a box. Uh, I think it's a quietly influential movie. You don't hear a lot of people talking about Splice. But I think without Splice, you don't get to the movies like Ex Machina and Morgan you know, and stuff like that, where they have these science experiments in a box and we're talking to them, or either be it AI or a created life form. I think this is nearer to the gate. And it's speculative science fiction in a way. It's something that we may be confronting in some form, be it a robot or a whatever this thing is. Yes. Uh, so this was 2007. This is an old movie now. <laughs> and the effects still look pretty good. And it's still on point. Like, nothing has aged poorly about this movie. Yeah. It does have, I think, a potentially audience-losing sex scene in it. Oh, you know, what's what's offensive about raising a creature as your daughter and then having it morph into a different sex and rape you? Come <laughs> on. Well, I was talking about the Adrian Brody one, actually. Oh. <laughs> Adrian Brody develops... Uh, a crush, a sexual obsession, perhaps. It's never really uh, said out loud, but she clearly lied that she used some other random DNA. Sarah Polly used her own DNA. Dren is part Elsa. Yes. And that part, I guess, he connects to. Uh, the way that he can't control Elsa, he thinks he can control Dren. <laughs> I honestly, I think it's a little ambiguous, but I think there might have been some pheromones let loose on Dren's part too. too. Well, that would definitely help it because it really, it, for they're both completely stupid, but between the two of them, he is the voice of reason yes. until he does this. And then you're like, what? You're not fucking your, your, your mutated daughter thing, okay? There's no part of you that should think this is a good idea. Like, what's the best case scenario here? <laughs> and again, that's what I was talking about with my opening salvo. If you're going to throw up your arms at that point and say this movie is stupid, then you're going to miss out on a good movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, once again, if you, if you get uh, the feeling, as I did, that when she actually throws up her arms and her, her little wings come up, that she's actually dusting, dusting, him. dusting him with some sort of pheromone spray. Right. Then it's a little bit more understandable. Well, the next time I watch it, I'll maybe pay more attention to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, tough ending. <laughs> like you said, uh, a lot of likable characters are killed by Dren, and we're not at least uh, initially unsympathetic to Dren. She kind of goes off of the rails. Mm -hmm. But it is interesting that, like, the first time when she kills a cat with her stinger and smiles afterwards, and you're like, oh, dear, yeah, <laughs> that's not good. Um, so, you're, I mean, Dren was a monster to me. I knew where this movie was going. Like, she, she must be destroyed. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, as you said, uh, having failed to mate with Adrian Brody, she switches genders and basically rapes Sarah Polly mm -hmm. and at the end of the movie the pharmaceutical company is paying her to keep the baby yes 
So they have learned. And nothing. Adrian, well, Adrian Brody learned his lesson by dying. By dying. Yes. No, he won't do anything else stupid. <laughs> but Elsa will live on to continue doing stupid, irresponsible things. But I mean, what? There's so few horror movies that aren't predicated on people doing some, at least at some point in the narrative, something stupid. But I understand. I've heard people talk about this movie saying, for some super intelligent scientists, everybody in that movie is fucking stupid. And I see what you're saying, but I do think there is a line. I think you can be incredibly intelligent when it comes to your chosen field, but still be fundamentally a stupid person when it comes to your like decision-making. Well, the thing is that you, know, you, can, you can say that they're stupid, but the thing is they're not. And what I got from watching them throughout the movie was an overwhelming sense of how proud they were. Yeah. And especially Elsa thought she was just invincible and that whatever she did was going to work out and it's not really even a matter of stupidity if you're blinded by how awesome you think you are and they thought they were really awesome both of them and there's a lot of collateral damage to the left and right that Elsa never really has to own Mm -hmm. it's another one I remember uh, the Coen Brothers movie Burn After Reading at the end you know, the character who wins in that movie is not the character who should win in that mm-hmm. movie. Elsa, I guess, wins if you consider, you know, giving birth to a monster a win. But uh, maybe she'll be a good mom this time. But from everything we know about the character and from everything we've seen with her behavior towards Dren, I, I don't think so. I think she's pretty fundamentally broken in that way. We don't even necessarily know if she's going to be allowed to play a mother figure you yeah. know and honestly that's probably a good thing like <laughs> you can see that pride at work in that scene right after uh dren has spurned her yeah and or her she... hesitation to kill dren at the last second which costs adrian brody his life yes yeah and her response to being spurned by dren is to tie her to a table strip off all of her clothes and amputate her stinger. Yep. It's scary. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's that scene where they try to drown her, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden she has gills. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's Not a pretty good scene. That, well, yeah. actually, it's Adrian Brody that who does that one. Who yeah. Does that? Yeah. <laughs> and then she's like, "Did you know that was going to happen?" He's like, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> totally knew that." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty good scene. Too. Uh, if you haven't seen Spice, I encourage you to check it out. Is there anything else you wanted to say about it? Um, yep, yeah, it's really cool. Go see it. Yeah. Uh, Canadian made. Makes me proud. Woo! And a boy dedicated to the mysteries of the past. He invokes the unspeakable. Yeah. Sata. She invites it. You're one of us now. Depthless paradise of terror where fear eternal lives. And the dead come to life. I've never heard anything like that. So the, this episode's called Mad Movies, or <laughs> Mad Movies Again, because I think all of these movies are a little bit mad. Um, sometimes it's a mad movie by design, sometimes it's a mad movie by accident. 
And I think that this 1970 version of the Dunwich Core is kind of closer to being a mad movie by accident. I mean, obviously, it has the subject matter of madness and the H.P. Lovecraft sort of backdrop to it. But there is something... This is an almost 50-year-old movie at this point, which makes me think Jesus. Dean Stockwell must be eternal. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, he looks very little in this movie. He's very young in the movie, but... Uh, there's something about this. It's 1970, but it still feels very 60s. And there's a lot of these experimental lenses where they're shooting through like uh, nylon or, or through cloudy water. Uh, this very specific aesthetic. Strange choices like where traditionally we would expect to hear uh, string instruments. They're using a lot of wind instruments yes. uh, to score the movie. And this whole idea of centering the movie around uh, Dean Stockwell as Wilbur Watley, who is supposed to be this very seductive character. And the dude looks fucking ridiculous. He looks ridiculous to me. Like, I do not understand him as, like, a romantic lead. I don't think he's a bad actor. But uh, <laughs> there's something so artificial about the movie is that I, I kind of watched the whole movie with this aww kind of attitude. It was like I was watching my kid perform his first play, and he was doing the best that he could do. But at the end of the day, the production had some serious flaws, right? I would say so, yeah. yeah. Uh, do they, in a very bare-bone way, tell a Lovecraftian-ish story? Yes. Is it good? No. Did I enjoy watching it? Yes, but to a degree, like, it kind of wears you out, <laughs> but oh. uh, it's, <laughs> I found the aesthetic of the movie kind of hilarious, and that seems really dismissive and shitty to say, but it's no more or less true. It's just how I felt. I was laughing at the movie, and the movie didn't want me to, so it's not good, but it's it's certainly more interesting than a lot of bad movies I've reviewed for this show. <laughs> yes. So, um, our story. Uh, Wilbur, Such as it is. Wilbur Wheatley. Um, uh, do you have the IMDb up? What's, our, what's our main heroine's name? Nancy Wagner, played by Sandra D. Okay, so um, Nancy Wagner, uh, uh, after a school party, meets this mysterious Wilbur Wheatley character who has... A hypnotic effect on her it's true he does have powers yes and he, she's so entranced with him kind of afraid of him uh, uh, he takes her to his mansion in the backwoods of massachusetts i assume that's where it is uh, still he, they go to the miskatonic university <laughs> oh okay okay and um they spend a lot of time hanging out together mm-hmm. a lot of time hanging out together um it's i guess it's sort of trying to be romantic in the middle there until we find out that his whole plan is to sacrifice, sacrifice her to the old, one. to the old ones <laughs> so that they come through. And we find out that he has a brother uh, and that they are the... A castle freak. Uh, kind of. <laughs> more of a madden, madden, maddening castle freak. They're right. parents of a woman and an elder god and his he brother was the human half of the twins and his <laughs> brother is some other other entity that yeah yes his his brother is the ending sequence to 2001 the movie mm. yes pretty much 
<laughs> we do see a bit of an actual monster, but for the most part, it's a, a bray of hip, hallucinogenic lights. Yes. Uh, and yeah, I think the influence of 2001 was fairly apt because, yeah, that would be my guess. They're trying to blow your mind, so kaleidoscopic lights. Yes. <laughs> so, um, yes, yeah, some people try to rescue Nancy, and I guess they succeed in the end, don't they? Good for them. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and again, the, there's no raising of stakes throughout the movie. You don't feel like things getting heightened or more and more tension building. Uh, I find the main character frustrating. Part of it is the time the, uh, the story is set in and the, the character she's being asked to play, but everybody's telling her, this dude is clearly evil. You should not hang with him. And she's like, yeah, but that mustache, you know. <laughs> That's the thing about Dean Stockwell in this movie. He, like, he, he, you're right. He's not a, a romantic lead at all. He's totally weird and creepy. But he is intense. Yeah. And he is powerful. I wouldn't say he's a bad actor. I he's a think... great actor yeah. in this, in fact. <laughs> And every time he's on screen, particularly during the first two thirds of this movie, it's a good movie, in 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 a lot of ways because he he almost you know he tricks you into thinking that this is going to be a good movie, and then it ends up not being. So that's kind of tragic, but yeah, I really love his performance. And um, interesting factoid I discovered actually. Um, in 2009, there was another Dunwich horror movie made for TV. Jeffrey Combs, I heard, right? I don't know, but uh, Dean Stockwell is in it again, and he ends up playing Dr. Armitage. Very nice. Yes. <laughs> well, based, uh, maybe maybe he saw that as a redemptive move. <laughs> again, you're right, he doesn't suck in the movie, but there is something painfully drawn out about all of the scenes. Oh, especially at the end, when... The we're ritual? Hearing... <laughs> the ritual's so bad. It goes on and on. And he, and he on. keeps walking around and around Nancy, going, like, you know, chanting his Cthulhu Vatagan. And then he, he starts going, like, Kyo, Kyo. Cutting Kyo. smoke. <laughs> Cutting smoke with a knife. So boring. And that weirdly uncomfortable scene where he puts a Nahuanamakan on her, her lady bits and she starts getting off. <laughs> <laughs> and again, then. Like, the old dude shows up. He says a handful of words. Dean Stockwell is struck by lightning, and the movie's fucking over. <laughs> well, I think... We have the stinger of the baby. <laughs> yes, of course, she's pregnant. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I think, honestly, I don't remember how the... Dunwich Horror ends, but I think it is actually pretty similar. Pretty similar. That, uh, but it really does Wilbur... seem like he says a few words, and that fucks the whole, <laughs> the whole ritual. Yes. Like this endless ten minutes we spend of him walking around in circles and <laughs> gibbering to himself. <laughs> yeah. That's what you have goons for. In other movies, you have goons to protect the ritual. <laughs> yes. And you think his brother? It would be handy to have his brother around protecting the perimeter too, but. Basically, his brother just goes out in the countryside and and two thousand ones people and and then he shows up at the end and goes to the same place as Wilbur. Um, what I think is actually kind of an interesting uh, take on this particular version is I you know just sign of the times when it was made. There's a huge sexual element to it that you know obviously Lovecraft is like. It's like yeah. the, he's. It, it's almost as though the guy is castrated. Yeah. Sex never comes up. 
And in this movie, so much sex in it. And, you know, you look at the visions of the old ones, and it's basically just a bunch of naked hippies running around. And, <laughs> That's the thing I was talking about, that 60s influence. Yeah, you, I guess in that time period, naked hippies were a thing, and people were actually afraid of them. Yes. So. <laughs> well, and it is 1970, but that, like, sort of trippy, cool, groovy man, we're all part of the hipster subculture thing, had a really negative ripple in a lot of popular movies. Yes. They would feel a need to pander to the hippies, and, and uh, the, the movie would suffer for it. But I just still, like, I would find it hilarious when they would do these close-ups on Dean Stockwell and just let us, like, just drink him in like he was Brad Pitt without a shirt or something, right? Like, the 70s really did have a different criteria for sexy. Yes, it's true. Now, um... Did you get the impression that his brother was invisible or not invisible? That was kind of confusing to me. Well, I, like, was the the glimpse we got of that beast at the end supposedly the old ones, or was that the physical manifestation of his brother, do you think? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't care enough, I guess, to really care to know to answer that question. Um, but again, there's something... You know, it almost feels like this movie could have been made today as a movie to make fun of movies that were made in, like, 1970 or 1969. Yeah. The way The Last Skeleton of Cadaver was making fun of cheapo 1960-nothing movies. Like, you could almost believe that somebody <laughs> today made this movie just to, to uh, take the piss out of these old, like, B-movies. Yes. I, I, I do like it because it's an early movie that tackles Lovecraft, I don't know why Hollywood seems so Lovecraft resistant. I mean, I, I guess I do know why. But like, uh, it's unfilmable, basically. I've yet to find unfilmable. <laughs> he was a racist. It always has to deal with men. It almost always has a bummer ending. It's a tough sell in yeah. Hollywood, but uh, there's an audience for it, clearly. So uh, people who are desperate to get some Lovecraft, I mean, this is a Lovecraft adaptation. Mm -hmm. It's not going to thrill or scare you, but it might make you laugh by accident. Oh, definitely. The um, Particularly if you've seen Blair Witch 2 Book of Shadows, <laughs> because the flashbacks that uh, to the old, great old ones seem really, really similar to right. the Blair Witch flashbacks. Um, Dean Stockwell, like I say, he's, he's great whenever he's on screen. <laughs> Maybe not... Uh, sexy I don't, I don't know if they were even going for that but he entertained me for the first two thirds of the movie and then the last third was just unspeakably dull <laughs> right when it's supposed to be getting interesting they just totally drop the reins and say you know what fuck it <laughs> we need to fill some time boys <laughs> let's have him walk around walk around Nancy a few more times going kyo kyo well, here's a question for you. Maybe yeah. to close things out. Like, this was made six years before I was born. Yeah. Do you think this movie was good in 1970? Is it just, like, is it because it's old that it's not good? Or is it just flatly not good? Like, are we just too separated from it to take it seriously? Or is it just flawed? I've seen movies from 1970 that were considered good, and they're still good. They still hold up. It's true. Like, I, I guess from that time period 
Easy Rider might be the exception. Like, I hate Easy Rider. That's a great example, though, because at the time, that movie's amazing. You watch it today, not so much. Mm -hmm. The Graduate, super important when it came out. I like The Graduate. But but again, I don't think, to me, it doesn't feel as relevant today. It doesn't seem like as an important of a movie. Um, There was a time period in Hollywood where people were mystified by the success of Easy Rider. Right. And they were throwing money at projects. Perhaps maybe this was even one of them that tried to capture that. It'll appeal to the kids. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Try to understand what what the kids loved so much about Easy Rider. So maybe this was an attempt at that. No, a failed one. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, That's just speculation, though. Don't take it. I don't mean to imply that every movie made in... Uh, before a certain date is just too old to be enjoyed. Obviously, there are classic movies. But I'm saying that it was so current. It was so, like, now when it was made that it's kind of garish to watch now. <laughs> There's some 80s movies that still you can watch today, and it's like, that's still a great movie. The Thing is still a great movie, right? Mm-hmm. Night of the Comet is so... It's got like a late stage uh, uh, diagnosis of 80s. There's so much 80s in that movie that it becomes hard to take serious, right? Yes. yes. That's sort of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think we've adequately described the movie. Enter at your own risk. I don't know. I think, I think if you put a, an easy rider loving hippie into Dunwich Horror... In the nineteen in nineteen seventy, he'd be down. The last third would guaranteed put them to sleep. <laughs> Nothing you can do about that. Yeah. Horror has many faces. Death wears many different masks, but pure evil wears only one. This is your final chance to see it. Jason goes to hell the final Friday. So these are mad movies we're talking about. Yeah. If you, if anyone asks why is the Jason goes to hell the quote final Friday on this list of movies? Why is it? It's probably if anyone was to ask that question, I would assume it meant because they haven't seen the movie, because the movie is completely <laughs> bonkers. So here's the thing: I'm actually kind of split a little. <laughs> this may surprise you about this movie. As a fan of the Friday the 13th franchise and a big, you know, supporter of ye old Jason Voorhees, it's my comfort food. When I'm sick and feverish, I will just watch Friday the 13th movies and drift in and out of consciousness. It's not hard to catch up if you sleep a few 20 minutes of them. <laughs> you figure out what's going on. Oh, is Jason killing people? Yeah, okay, good. So, uh, as a fan of Friday the 13th, I'm offended by this movie. <laughs> it's like it completely whatever limited mythology that they'd built in the first seven movies of the franchise are is completely abandoned and re- rebuilt here. The other part of my brain is if I if I separate myself from being a fan of Jason killing campers at Camp Crystal Lake, 
is just me being a fan of movies that are really fucking crazy. <laughs> and this movie is really fucking crazy. So when I'm ranking it with the other Friday the 13th movies, yeah, it's a terrible Friday the 13th movie. But if I'm ranking it in a list of mad movies, it's a deliciously crazy piece of cinema. I mean, we were giving points to the other movies of not knowing what you're going to get scene for scene and say what you will about Jason Goes to Hell. It's not predictable. <laughs> it is not predictable. But the thing that I think that differentiates... Jason Goes to Hell from the other ones is that we don't trust this director mm. and production crew to do something that we're going to They're enjoy. handling a sacred product, but they themselves are not proven, yes. Yeah. I don't, you know, it seems, it seems really weird to say something like, you can trust Stuart Gordon. <laughs> but, but to <laughs> some level you can. He's yeah. going to give you a Stuart Gordon movie. Exactly. <laughs> These guys, um, as you mentioned, they, they've taken a lot of liberties with the universe of Friday the 13th that don't make any sense and kind of shit on a lot of the work that has been done before. And now, you know, this isn't sacred text. No. But if you're going to set a movie in a particular universe, pay some, pay some respect to what's come before. And again, in playing devil's advocate, Sean S. Cunningham came back in a genuine producer level to, to do this movie. He directed the first movie and basically got paychecks for all the other ones. Yes. It's the, the franchise has switched hands. It's called Jason now instead of Friday the 13th for copyright issues. <laughs> uh, so they could use Jason Goes to Hell, but they couldn't call it Friday the 13th part. Nine or whatever it is. It's nine. Yeah, it's the ninth. I misspoke earlier. <laughs> There's a lot of Friday the 13th movies. <laughs> yes. Yes. Things that are good. When they change hands, we go back to Sean S. Cunningham. And now that we're with New Line and some years has gone by, uh, they're not as difficult in dealing with the uh, ratings board, who really had a problem picking on Friday the 13th specifically. Friday the 13th Part 8 Jason Fisk Manhattan is practically PG because of the ratings board and the, the, the 7th and 6th had a lot of stuff taken out of it. Coming back this time, no problems. They produced an uncut version and they had a tamer version that was released theatrically and then the version that we watched which the titties are back and the blood is back and the base horror fans of Friday the 13th will celebrate that. Mm -hmm. And I will say again with Devil's Advocate Coming back that many movies deep, they decided, for good or ill, they were going to do something different. <laughs> okay? Now, I think that deep into a franchise, that's a mistake. But I understand from a creative standpoint saying, you know, we're doing something different. I heard the director interviewed and he said, for all those people at Bitch that it's not just Jason in a hockey mask killing chicks at a lake, there is... Plenty of other Friday the 13th movies to catch. <laughs> much like part five, they tried something different, but much like part five, they largely stepped on a rake. They, uh, the, the production team, the director actually wanted to meld Evil Dead. Yeah, some Jason. of that uh, iconography is in there here too. Yeah. And, and use, you know, Evil Dead uh, universe stuff to explain why Jason uh, goes from being a kid drowned in a lake in the first movie to being uh, a grown 
hulking mass hulking killer in the second movie for you know, I guess he grew up or whatever but no he, evil dead stuff a wizard did it I <laughs> yeah. guess and uh, you know to explain all of these changes but I don't think it works yeah it's give the people what they want like I'm horrified apparently the rights are finally being sorted out for Friday the 13th we are going to get more Friday the 13th and Coincidentally, the next movie they make will be the 13th, Friday the 13th movie. They better make it special. And the word on the street is they want to make it about Pamela fucking Voorhees. Huh. You guys are idiots. Is it you just going to be idiot. a remake? Or is uh, she I assume to... a prequel about... I don't know. Who knows? I don't know. I haven't seen the movie. But, like, give the people what they want. And for good or ill, what people want when they watch a Friday the 13th movie is sex and violence. They want a bunch of stupid kids to go somewhere they're not supposed to. They want Jason to knock most most of them off. And they want the ending to leave it open so that maybe Jason can come back inevitably again. You're over-fucking-thinking it, right? Anybody who thinks that everybody's going to line up to watch the origin story of Pamela Voorhees is deluding themselves, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, We're getting off topic. We are. <laughs> I, I, my, what I was trying to say is that... All, Generally, on its face, that's not necessarily a bad thing, saying that we want to rework things. But in this particular universe, this kind of thinking isn't rewarded, okay? But again, if I watch, if I think of it isolated as a movie by itself, as Jason goes to hell, there's so much hilarious in it, either intentional or otherwise. We have, of course, the character of... Uh, well, sorry, before you before you go on here, uh, we haven't even t- talking, talked yeah, about... We'll get to the, the story. But, but just going back to what you're saying, give people what they want, even in this movie, that isn't done well, though, because fairly early on in the movie where uh, our lead male picks up some kids... Yes, that's right. ...who are going to go out to Crystal Lake to you know have sex and skinny dip and stuff like that. And they do, and they get killed. And it does nothing to further or advance the plot. Well, that tent kill is pretty crazy, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty over the top. And again, at compared the time, to the we hadn't seen we... anything like that for a while. Compared to the other shit that happens in this movie, though, it's not that crazy. Right. Like, we had just seen uh, a mortician eat a heart. Eat a heart. <laughs> Right. Well, let's step back and talk about the plot. Yes, let's, please, please. Uh, I'll, I'll let you unpack this okay. one. We open Camp Crystal Lake. A very attractive woman takes off her clothes and is about to have a shower. The lights go out. She is oh. pursued by Jason. And, and by the way, sorry, quick side note. You, I didn't notice in the 90s how bad fashion was. <laughs> it just seemed normal. I guess that's the way it is for everybody. There's some bad fashion here. It's terrible hair on this woman. <laughs> terrible fashion sense. Like the, the pants. Take a hard look at Jason Takes Manhattan, man. There's some real 80s going on there. Anyway. Yes, continue. Jason is obliterated by a SWAT team or some sort of military crew. <laughs> they riddle him with bullets and then literally explode him. And all hardcore Jason fans in the theater went, the fuck just happened? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> the pieces of Jason are scooped up and taken to uh, be processed and uh, a mortician while conducting the autopsy. Just can't resist how delicious that Jason heart looks. <laughs> Everybody's with us, right? <laughs> the mortician eats Jason Hart and then becomes Jason. 
like you do. Like, like has been established in none other than Friday the 13th. <laughs> so, uh, he uses up these bodies quickly, but if he can get himself inside the body of another Voorhees, he's back to being this indestructible killer, complete again with hockey mask. It doesn't matter. Don't think about it. On top of all of that lunacy, um, we have Creighton Duke. <laughs> Played by Stephen Williams, this mysterious figure with a cowboy hat who knows everything and whose behavior from scene to scene makes no sense. There's real free flow to his continuity here. What his motivations are change from scene to scene. His being friendly or not friendly changes from scene to scene. He's like playing a different character from scene to scene. Some scenes he'll he'll help you kill Jason, and other scenes he'll break your fingers for, for no, no reason. reason. <laughs> and it's insane, but it does add to the movie. Like the movie would be less awesome without that character that makes no sense. <laughs> and I, I love how he says to Jason at one point, "You remember me, don't you?" <laughs> Why would we assume that? Like, he he hasn't showed up in any of the previous movies. That's, again, some story that was not told. Yes. <laughs> yes. That did not reference anything that happened in any previous Friday the 13th. But do you think there was a previous script for Jason Goes <laughs> Maybe to there was a, another monologue that he gave that got cut to how he fought Jason Long. Who cares? It does seem like part of the story is missing in this movie. Yeah. And, again, a lot of the stuff makes so clearly doesn't make sense that you'd think, well, how did you not catch that? Like, I talked about when Creighton steals the baby so that he can talk to her alone. <laughs> he didn't need to kidnap her baby to talk to her alone. He could <laughs> literally have said, come with me for a second. <laughs> like, there was just... And why did he need to talk to her alone? Well, because anybody else could be Jason. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. <laughs> It doesn't make sense. <laughs> okay. Again, but here's the thing. The guy who sat down to write this Friday the 13th movie, this ninth Friday the 13th movie, I think he might have consciously said, well, let's do things backwards. Okay? We're not going to have barely any teens in the movie. Most of the people in this movie are going to be in their 30s. Most of this movie is going to happen during the day. It's going to deal with demons and mysticism instead of being a proper slasher movie. It's like it's like they did an anti-Friday the 13th movie and then called it a Friday the 13th movie to fuck with the fan base. <laughs> hmm. But I enjoy myself while I'm watching the movie. Like, again, it's sort of like... Well, it's different than, than a Dunwich Horror and that I enjoyed myself in the way I was just like... It, it was missing the mark so completely that it was kind of, like, adorable. This movie is mad, it doesn't make any sense, and it's disrespectful to its source material, and I can't take my eyes off it. Yes. Fairly decent practical effects. For the time, for sure. And seeing some things in practical effects that you've never seen before as well. Somewhat memorable characters, and characters not just making bad decisions. In all of the other Friday the 13th movies, people would either take in the plot points at face value, or run towards the danger, right? Yeah. When he says, Jason is jumping bodies, and I have to save you and our child, she kicks him the fuck out of the car, because that's what a sane person would <laughs> yes, do, yes. right? <laughs> so, again, it's almost the anti-Friday the 13th movie. I hate it as a Friday the 13th movie. I kind of love it as a mad movie. Huh. 
I have nothing more to add to that. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I uh, am not that well-versed in Friday the 13th mythology. Right. It's never really been my favorite series of movies, but it does piss me off that it uh, gives <laughs> a big old fuck you to the universe and to the mythology no. itself. It has no respect for anything that came before, and it's not recognized by anything that comes after it. It's the, it is the red-headed stepchild of the Friday the 13th series. And this is a series that has Jason Takes Manhattan and Jason in Space. <laughs> okay. Um, Jason but, in Space uh, makes more as sense in, in terms of the universe. I have you. a guilty pleasure response with that movie too. But again, I like these movies for their stupidity sometimes. Um, this is not a good movie, but it's, I guess, in some ways, a good bad movie to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think, uh, and, you know, once again, weird things you've never seen before. Have you ever seen a character killed by having his head shoved in a deep fryer? No, that was new. Good kill. Yeah, good kill. <laughs> good kill, Jason. Solving the following riddle will reveal the awful secret behind the universe, assuming you do not go utterly mad in the attempt. If you already happen to know the awful secret behind the universe, feel free to fast forward ahead. David, David Wong? Wong? David Wong? Did you doze off there? stuff this soy sauce that's a drug right just tell me what this stuff is john effects don't last that long no side effects don't last that long the effects will last the rest of my life i think why don't you tell me tell me about your friend john i mean that stuff dave i'm remembering things that haven't happened yet you got to be really brave to ask yourself the scary questions your friend is the only known survivor the rest are dead He's not looking too healthy right about now. It'd be opening doors to other worlds, man. <gasps> it's the weirdest thing you've ever seen, Arnie. So leave the police station right now during all the commotion. There's another guy in here with me. It's another cop. No, there's not. Check the mirror. How does somebody get into this? There's dead guys and drugs. It's kind of a long story, but now we can see things. Things are in motion, Mr. Wong. Nothing you're seeing is real. I suppose you are wondering where you are. You're having like a like a bad trip or whatever they call it. But there is no magic. We've uh, we've talked Don Coscarelli in the in the past. We have, and he's recognized as another of those great weird directors. He makes his own movies. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and he's in good company here, um, and as far as other directors who do that. Um, so maybe we don't need to talk about him so much. Uh, <laughs> but of what, who I would like to mention is the writer uh, of this uh, of the story in which this is based on, a man named Jason Pargin, pen name David Wong. Um, I love this guy's philosophical writing. Uh, it has changed my life, literally. Um, you can read it on crack.com for free. If you just search for David Wong articles lately, uh, you know, particularly within the last six years or so, pretty much everything that he writes, as long as it's not on the subject of the internet going wrong <laughs> and how much trouble Cracked is in, it is philosophical gold and 
I love David Wong. Thank you, David Wong. Mm -hmm. I know you listen to the podcast. Yes, well, (laughs) all smart people do. Um, Yeah, it's a John Dies at the End is a crazy movie based off of a crazy book. I'm familiar with the the books, both the John Dies at the End and this book is full of spiders. There's a third one that I haven't read yet, but uh, I don't know as much about the philosophical writings he's done. But as far as these ones go, I will say the theme, at least of the first two books, or or the, the takeaway is. For these books, it is definitely the journey and not the destination. Uh, It's the crazy stuff that he's going to introduce you to seemingly at random chapter to chapter. and Some of it pays off and comes back into the story and some of it kind of doesn't. It's it's an odd it's an odd beast. How uh, faithful an adaptation is this movie? Like I imagine there's a whole lot of stuff couldn't be included, but they minimally invented things. Okay, I will say that. They they didn't add very much, but they took away a lot, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. But it's a big book. It'd be kind of hard not to. Um, it's, I was talking to Jeremy before we started about how hard this is going to be to break down as far as a plot. So I'm going to start this way. A man named David, played by Chase Williams, meets uh, another man, uh, played by Paul Giamatti, named Arnie. Uh, and he's got a scoop for Arnie. He's, got a, he's going to tell him something that's going to be a big story that he needs to get out there. And it all has to do with a series of crazy events that happened to Dave after he and his buddy John encountered this crazy drug called, they call soy sauce. You can either be injected or consumed or somebody can be infected by it and bite you. And almost like a zombie bite, you will become infected by it. Can it be absorbed through your skin? Oh, yeah. And it also is its own conscious, sentient thing. When John is first dosed, it actually takes the form of a fly and flies to him and absorbs into him. Mm -hmm. But once you've taken the stuff, it's sort of like you're changed forever. And you are granted, not only does it fuck you up, but it also sort of grants you access to other dimensions and folds time and it has all sorts of crazy metaphysical supernatural side effects and he's got this crazy bill of goods this convoluted story that involves you know time travel meat monsters uh the origin of an axe (laughs) all sorts of these crazy things and slowly over the course of the conversation paul giamatti is convinced and there's still more shoes to drop. Um, so basically, that's what I'm going to call the plot of the movie. Is We keep going back to this diner, and Chase is telling us this crazy story of all the fucked up stuff that's happened to him since he encountered the, the sauce. And uh, you really just got to take everything on the chin. Much like other movies we talked about in the, the this episode as well, you don't know what's around every corner, but uh, it's not accidental. It's very much by design. Um, there's all sorts of questions one could ask, and I can understand people just thinking that it was nonsense. But there's joy in the oddness of the movie. Definitely. And my first spoiler is, John doesn't die at the end. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so... The movie's not making fun of you. It's not pissing in your face, but it 
It rejects structure almost in the same way David Lynch does, but it cares about entertaining you in a way that David Lynch seems to not. <laughs> if you go into this movie, I would advise not trying to predict what's going to happen next. You're not ahead of this movie. No. <laughs> <laughs> it already knows what you're thinking, and it doesn't care. Yes. <laughs> and that, I think, is the most authentic thing. Like, I think if you read the book, you would. it's easier to say once you've read the book. But, I mean, it doesn't express everything that's in the book, but it expresses the vibe of the book. Okay. Yes. You feel me? <laughs> I feel you. Yes. And yeah, there's uh, we got Clancy Brown in this. Yeah, a celebrity exorcist, like yes. you do. <laughs> He's uh, it's wonderful to see him playing a good guy for once. Mm -hmm. um, Angus Scrim is in it. Good to see him again. A regular of Coscarelli, of course, from the Phantasm series. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and. The two leads, the two male leads, are uh, quite entertaining as well. Chase Williamson and Rob Mays. I was going to actually ask what you thought of that, because a lot of people think that that's the problem with the movie, is that the two leads are kind of flat. Everything else around them is completely crazy, but they're kind of almost blank surfaces. I think that's a little bit unkind. I think that that's almost the job that's being asked of them. Like, the whole point of the movie, when we get to the end of the movie, and they're greeted like saviors to this parallel universe and they shrug it off because they want to watch tv or whatever right like they don't give a fuck and i think that's maybe what people are seeing in the quote flat performances is that they've been living in the world of the sauce for so long that they've failed to be impressed by it we yeah. haven't been living in the world of the sauce for very long at all so it fucks our shit up yes <laughs> Well, um, I would say that I experienced a little bit of not caring about their characters, but um, they were always entertaining when they were on the screen. It's just, I guess their adventure uh, seemed so ludicrous and you could never really predict what was going to happen. It, John dies in the middle. Yes. Right? And he dies and so we're not really, but he's, you know, obviously he comes back later. Yeah. And well, Obviously, after he dies, he gives his buddy a phone call. Yeah. Asks him if he's died yet. <laughs> uh, so obviously there's a little, there's issues with not, with them not being in any sort of peril. Because if they can die, well, so yeah. what? Uh, time is losing its, its meaning and its reality. Yes. Uh, but it's horrifying the way it bleeds over into our other characters. And this is the great thing about the, the Paul Giamatti character. Because first, the big revelation to him is that there's this other world that exists that you can access through spice. And when he hears the story and he actually sees the spice and is actually sauce. sauce, pardon me. The spice is all dune. I apologize. <laughs> uh, when, he, when he sees the sauce and the effects it has, and he actually gets a glimpse of a creature, he loses his mind. He's like super energized by this because he's going to be able to tell the story to the world. But they don't, the powers that be don't want the secret spilled. So the, the, the journalist that came to meet Chase has actually already been killed, and this is a weird manifestation of his after self. And when he realizes that he has been killed, he disappears from existence. <laughs> and thus lies the character that was basically our surrogate, our access to this world. Right? <laughs> and I really think from like Giamatti, the acting point of view, like all the layers that he's gonna be get to play here, right? Mm -hmm. Uh 
It's a crazy movie. And because it's a crazy movie, it might not be for everyone, but I like it a lot. <laughs> it's funny, too. It's really funny. Uh, the, the meat monster uh, is super funny. There's a turkey for a head. And uh, the way that it just explodes from talking to, just by talking to Clancy Brown over the phone is hilarious. <laughs> Minor beats. The, he wants to stop John from leaving, so he turns the doorknob into a penis, and John's scared to touch it. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> no one saw that coming. <laughs> yeah. I know I won't do it justice, but even even just the very first scene is so charming that it, it sucks you in, and that's the story of the of axe. The, of the axe, you know. It's <laughs> funny it, that moment. It reminds me. I just reviewed Magnolia. <laughs> There's the uh, sequence at the beginning of Magnolia that talks about this weird metaphysical coincidences and what does it all mean? Much the same way this opens. You know, <laughs> he uses an axe to kill this zombie <laughs> or kill this dude, and. Uh, he, he keeps the axe, and over time he has to replace the handle, and over time he has to replace the head. And when the zombie comes and he kills it, and the zombie cries, that's the axe that slayed me. Is he right? <laughs> and again, the movie doesn't really attempt to answer that, and it doesn't really set up the rest of the movie. It's just a really fucked up, interesting idea, and that's what the book is crammed with. Mm -hmm. Page to page. In the way that, like, Catch-22, the novel tried to put a... a some bit of hypocrisy or, or, or circular logic in almost every page. This film is just filled with weird, lonely ideas that seem isolated and almost outside of the plot, right? Mm -hmm. But are by themselves super cool. <laughs> yeah, definitely. This is something to see. You, uh, there are, of course, budgetary issues. There's some CGI that looks pretty CGI. I will mm -hmm. concede that. But and it there are some things that clunk a little bit, uh, some a little bit of wooden acting, but honestly, um, if you are a horror connoisseur, this sort of thing is not going to bother you. Or if you value originality. Oh, definitely, <laughs> the originality of this of this movie overshadows everything else that is negative about it. Honestly, like from an A and B and C level, I'm not even sure it completely clicks together in a way of like making sense, but I still get behind it in a way. Like maybe I'm a hypocrite for talking shit about David Lynch all this time because I always complain when he does it, but this movie stays fun and entertaining. It's not obtuse, <laughs> you know, it just wants to weird you out and it wants to invite you into the world and I can imagine someone who hadn't read the books watching this movie saying I should probably read that book and you know what you're right <laughs> good enough yeah Jeremy Cook. 
Thank you so much for coming back to Rank and Review. I don't mean to give you a hard time. I know it's been a long time since you've been here. I just want you to know that I'm not I'm not bullshitting you. Rank and Review misses Jeremy. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so you're welcome to come back whenever you can. Uh, bully your wife because she still has six of my movies. That's right. <laughs> Psycho killer movies, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. She was having problems with them. They were scaring her too much. <laughs> she said she didn't want to watch Hellraiser two. <laughs> <laughs> Well, she's got to do it. She picked the list, man. I didn't. I didn't make her choose that list. She chose that list. There's no going back once you chose <laughs> no, the list. No. no, you either you either do the podcast or you kill yourself. I guess there's just no way out. <laughs> anyway, so we've talked about these six clearly mad motion pictures. <laughs> what was your least favorite of these six mad movies, and why? Okay, so this is a tough list because. The goodness comes in so many different ways at you, and so does the badness. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's so, so difficult to, to extract the brilliance from low-budget movies uh, and weigh it against each other. But this is, this is the best that I've done, uh, or I can do. So here we go. At number six, Jason Goes to Hell. And the reason why is just because it left me feeling cold and I didn't feel anything for the characters. You were laughing at it a little. I was in the room. You were laughing at that movie. I was laughing at it. (laughs) But I don't necessarily trust that that laughter was intentionally uh, given to me. Uh, Number five, I'm going to put Dunwich Horror. Um... I put Dunwich Horror above uh, Jason Goes to Hell just because I, I really enjoyed Dean Stockwell's performance, even though the last third of the movie is, is so interminable. <laughs> uh, at four, I'm going to put Castle Freak, because there, while it is a, a, in many ways an unpleasant movie to watch, there's still something there that's quite enjoyable. Unpleasant, but not easy to shake. <laughs> yes. Uh, number three, I'm going to put John Dies at the End. Um, it's a great movie full of great imagination, but there's just some clunkiness to it, I think, that holds it back from from really being insanely good. Um, my top two, very difficult. I'm going to put uh, Splice at number two, recognizing that it's probably a better made movie than In the Mouth of Madness, but I do have a special spot in my heart for Lovecraft Mythos, and this is honestly the movie that I've seen it done best in so far, even if it's not an original Lovecrafty, uh, Lovecraft story. Yeah. It is Lovecraftian mythos done extremely well. So uh, the top two, number two, Splice, number one, In the Mouth of Madness. Oof. Well, again, we didn't match. We, we were pretty close. At first, I thought we were only going to miss in one place. But I'm actually, in a way, happy that we missed in two. Because I would hate for it to have been the Dunwich Horror that fucking spoiled the whole part. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I put the Dunwich Horror in last place. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it because I was kind of laughing at it. And that's not a good endorsement, <laughs> yeah. you know? But I would say if you would enjoy laughing at it, then maybe give it a try. But uh, again, it's very dated. 
But I appreciate that they took a swing at Lovecraft and like <laughs> that was the draw to me of the movie. It's a Lovecraft adaptation that I hadn't seen. That, that, that was why I wanted to watch the movie. I've watched it. I've crossed it off the list. I will now go about forgetting that it exists. So it, it's in Fair the enough. bottom. <laughs> Look, Jason Goes to Hell is not a good movie, but I think that it will. It, it, it's more memorable <laughs> than the Dunwich Horror by a large degree. And though it completely is offensive to fans of the Friday the 13th genre, again, as a mad movie, as a piece of crazy entertainment by itself, as a moment-to-moment bonkers piece of filmmaking, yeah, it fought its way to fifth place. (laughs) Faint phrase, but there it is. All the way in fourth place, I put The Castle Freak. I do like the movie i do see its qualities but i do think that you have to be a bit of an aficionado to appreciate it and i don't think it's the most accessible stuart gordon movie <laughs> you know like uh, the, the the guy did robot jocks and reanimator you know <laughs> so, <laughs> this is this is a different animal this is a different animal uh it's ugly but um like I say, I was I, I remember watching it. I rented it from 49 Cent Video, and it felt like I'd seen something that I shouldn't. <laughs> like, it felt forbidden. Oh, yeah. And That's it, actually a really good way of putting it, isn't it? Right? Like, uh, and I couldn't forget it. Like, I always remembered Castle Freak, but in that way, almost guiltily, like, it was this 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 dirty secret. Like, yeah, I saw Castle Freak. That shit's fucking crazy. <laughs> right? Yeah, like, like watching the first UFC tournament or something like that. Like, ugh. Wow. <laughs> Is this okay? Should I be watching this? Yeah. The top three was incredibly difficult, and we are differing, but I am sympathetic. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So in third place, I'm putting Splice. Uh, lots of reasons uh, mainly what I talked about in the review is the pill that you're asked to swallow and I do think that there's a certain portion that just won't be able to swallow some of the decisions made in this movie but that's too bad because you're you're, you're talking yourself out of a really good movie um, Vincenzo Natale too I want to support him like he's a little bit up and down in his quality but uh, as good as like cube was conceptually in an execution that that nothing movie that he did that i reviewed literally did nothing for me right <laughs> um this it feels like a canadian movie and how dark and twisted it is but it doesn't feel like a canadian movie in the professional polish the special effects would go beat for beat with any movie that came out this year and it's it's over ten years old already. Speaking so. of effects, I need to remind you. Yeah, we wanted to talk. We didn't talk about this really memorable, awful scene in the movie, where uh, before they've experimented with human DNA, they have these two little monsters that they've created, and they have a press conference with all these investors and press there to show these two creatures mate and. Instead, an absolutely horrendous act of violence was played out in front of everyone. Uh, the two creatures just destroy each other, and it's fucking horrifying and weird and twisted in a way that only Canadian horror movies seem to indulge. It's a great scene. It's like the worst press conference you could ever imagine. Yeah. <laughs> so in second place, I put John Dies at the End. The second and third was the one that I was wrestling with the most. Uh, It's so idea-rich. 
And if the, if the hurdle you have to get over is that it doesn't answer all the questions that it asks or that some of the performances are stronger than others, I don't think it's as big a hurdle as some people will find with Splice. I think if Splice hits you wrong, you're really not going to like it. If John dies at the end, hits you wrong, you'll just sort of think, man, that movie was weird. <laughs> but these two are close. I mean, as to where to rank them, they're not similar movies at all, but they're really hard. And we are going to come back to agreement. Um, the reason I love John Carpenter, you said you're not sure if you're a fan, is like he's made enough brilliant movies that I can forgive the vampires and the villages of the damned, right? Like, if he had just made Halloween and this is what he was anchoring his career off of, that would be impressive. But he made Halloween, he made Assault on Precinct 13, he made The Thing, he made Starman. He made Big Trouble in Little China. You know, like, the list of great movies go on and on. And in that list of great movies, this one ranks high for me. The only flaw that I feel to see it is, like, the aesthetic of the, the 90s-ness of the movie, I guess. The, the John Carpenter score has that sort of cheesy guitar background to it. And there's something that sort of screams, This is an early 90s movie. Beyond that, I have no complaints. Like, at all. Mm -hmm. So, number one. <laughs> yeah yeah can't uh i can't really even argue with that list it's it uh, was very close it was very close i so much appreciate you being here i apologize that we've pretty much done away with the jerry's on the show i've been having this issue with running time like for the longest time i was like i shouldn't make the podcast more than two hours i'm wasting people's lives <laughs> right yeah um so i was trying to get more disciplined with that and now like well the podcasts are what they need to be to an extent. If it gets too crazy, it gets too crazy. But if doing the six reviews in the ranks takes me more than two hours, then throwing the Jerry's on at the end, right? I was thinking, like, maybe it would make it a, a thing for, like, I don't know, <laughs> supporters of Rankin Review. We could have, like, or we could do our own personal Jerry's for each individual episode, but you only get access to it if you give us a quarter. That's okay. <laughs> I haven't heard Jerry's in, in a couple of years now. They're, they're dead. They we have did. to let them go. We just have them. Yeah. It was a nice idea. It was a nice idea. I like the idea of giving best kill or most what the fuck moment, but I don't like the idea of all of my podcasts being <laughs> three to five hours long. <laughs> I understand. I want you to consider this, though. Yes. I, I observed that uh, the most recent time that... Joe Rogan had Alex Jones on his show. It's a six-hour episode. Mm -hmm. And if he can get away with it, you can too. Now, keep in mind, I do not want to listen to that episode. I don't want to listen to Alex Jones. I, my respect rat. for Joe Rogan's <laughs> drop just for him platforming the dude, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> like, if there was a quarrel between those two, uh, I, guess, I guess Crazy Man won. Because Joe Rogan just gave him a huge fucking megaphone to scream on. But yeah, I'm not about the six hour podcast. I listen to podcasts and like uh, as I've gotten into it, like I've limited myself. I will subscribe to no more than 12 podcasts <laughs> and some of them get backlogged. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate a podcast that's as long as it needs to be. The Dana Gould hour is sometimes two hours and is sometimes four, but it's always as long. As it needs to be. Uh, and I guess that's the goal I'm shooting for. So I remember two years ago you mentioned that you had actually made a, a list of movies specifically. built. You'd built another list of movies specifically for me. I did. I mean, you don't have to take it. But oh, I, 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 it's, it's an honor. So why didn't you, why didn't you tell me uh, what it's all about? It's, lo it's Lovecraftian. I'm just going to bring it up on the screen here. It's going to take a few seconds. 
So we have the lurking fear. We have the resurrected. We have the color out of space. We have the Necronomicon. Now those are all directly adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft. Necronomicon is? The, it... So the stories in the Necronomicon are. Okay. Uh, loosely. And then we have Cast a Deadly Spell and Lair of the White Worm, which I think we could fairly state have fairly strong Lovecraftian influences. I can't wait. To be continued, kids. six really mad movies um, strange thing to rank uh, an enjoyable bunch of movies and a welcome return to genre I know ranking review usually does a lot more horror than we have in the last couple of months but uh, it's just the way the episodes have ended up falling and, the, and the, the guests we've had and the episodes they've selected so I hope you're happy with that and uh, if you have feedback to give me of course as always you can send that to rankinreview at gmail.com that's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. If you're uh, looking for something else to listen to now that this podcast is behind you, maybe try out The Terror Table. It's another local podcast, and uh, they're really, really good. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. I hope you continue to do so. And please tell a friend about the show. It really helps. <laughs>